issue and schedule of Bitcoin does not respond to political pressure in any way. It cannot change. It doesn't care about the, the ebbs and flows of human affairs. It just does exactly what it says it will do. In other words, Bitcoin's quote-unquote monetary policy gives zero fucks. And this is so important in a world where Bitcoin, or I'm sorry, where central banks are just adding zeros to a database to steal wealth systemically, right? You, you have to have a zero fucks money to prevent central bankers from just adding zeros to a database to steal your wealth. There is no other answer. And what, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by zero fucks money? It's a money that cannot be confiscated, it cannot be inflated, and it cannot be stopped. Like this, this is what we need to throw off the yoke of central bank tyranny once and for all. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Okay, so the next section I'm going to go into is titled Finite and Infinite Games. And this is partly inspired by a book by that title. And the way I look at this is most, if not all, human interactions are game-like. Um... What I mean is there are there are rules of engagement. Uh, there tend to be criteria for success and failure. Uh, there is often cooperation, often competition occurring at the same time in different contexts. Uh, and this is in this is in everything, right? This is in dating. This is in business. This is in sports. 
um, everything humans do tends to have these qualities, right? That there are some rules, some protocols, some, um, some mannerisms, some, some etiquette, you know, things like that of engagement, like how to properly talk to a girl or properly negotiate a business deal, etc. There are criteria for success and failure, right? You're either, you get the girl or you close the deal or you don't. Um, and there also are, uh, the third thing just escaped me, rules, criteria for failure and, oh, competition and cooperation, right? Like you're typically working with people towards certain ends. You're also going to be working against other people that might also be going towards the same ends as you. Um, now in macroeconomics, uh, or the free market, we're basically that term, or we just say macroeconomics, so like worldwide free market activity, it's basically a constellation of all the games played in an attempt to satisfy the wants or demands of mankind, which are infinite, right? The human heart has unlimited wants. No matter what you give humans, we always want more. Within the bounds of his time and, and available supplies of capital, which are strictly finite, right? There's, there's only a certain amount of hours in the day and, and things, right? Goods and services, uh, that we can provide at any one time. So it's this, it's this finite and infinite game taking place. And in this game, the score is tracked in money, obviously, um, and to use lingo from that book, which is titled Finite and Infinite Games, there's basically two types of economic games. There's the unfree or centrally planned markets, which are theatrical, meaning that they are performed in accordance with a predetermined script that entails dutifulness and a disregard for spontaneity, right? That you're, you're conforming to the central plan. You're doing what the bureaucracy says you're just following orders, right? That's one way of, of playing economic games. The other way, um, and, and this is a obviously <laughs> bad, right? This is all the atrocities, for instance, that Nazis uh, perpetrated on, on other uh, ethnic groups. Oftentimes when the soldiers were asked like why they did it, they would often say they're just following orders, right? So this theatrical game can have very atrocious consequences. And on the other hand, we have free markets, which are much more dramatic in nature, meaning that they are spontaneously enacted in the present and they're, they're according to consensual and adaptable rules, right? These are not imposed rules. These are people kind of freely selecting what the boundaries, proper, proper boundaries should be and changing them as needed. Uh, it's much more play. It's much more like play. When you see kids playing on the playground, they're kind of making the rules up as they go, and they, you know, it's a self-regulated type of thing. Whereas um, uh, a, bu a bureaucracy, right, where you're just told what to do, there's there's penalties if you don't do it. That's something much more like an unfree market. Uh, a good example of a dramatic market space is something, you know, very far from from state interference like software development where you see developers and entrepreneurs free freely adopting the rules the tools and the protocols that best serve them or their customers right there's not 
not a lot of dictates. And this is changing a little bit as the state kind of catches up to some of these uh, digital players. But at least in the early days, um, these these rules and tools were, were freely selected and the games that were played in software development tended to be much more dramatic in nature and less theatrical. And so somewhat simply to sum it up, you get theatrical games that are governed by imposed rules, right? That's tyrannical in this way. It's like do this or else. Whereas rule sets for dramatic games are consensually and voluntarily adopted based on individual sovereignty, right? Which is kind of the opposite of tyranny. It's just individuals can choose for themselves what works best. Now, from a moral perspective, it's very clear that sovereignty, individual sovereignty is always superior to tyranny, right? You, I think this is basically true in every moral system, right? You, it, it's hard to justify coercing and hurting or controlling another person, right? The only moral justification for that typically is in response to some other harm or or violence committed against an individual that uh that you could respond by defending yourself but uninitiated coercion or violence is just not very morally justifiable in, in any moral system that i'm aware of what's less known though is that from a much more practical perspective that tyranny is actually much less energy efficient than individual sovereignty as well and the reason is, this gets into some work uh, that I learned secondhand through Jordan Peterson, who's referring to the work of Jean Piaget, who's, an, uh, what did he describe himself as? And a, a genetic epistemologist, I believe. And he's a very interesting guy. Uh, I've read a little bit of his, his work. Very brilliant thinker. But he drew a line between equilibriated and disequilibriated games and it's very much like the theatrical versus dramatic games we're describing here and in a theatrical game which would be disequilibriated which would be imposed rules there is an expenditure necessary on enforcement of the rules right because the participants are not consensually adopting the rules you actually have to expend energy enforcing the rules, right? Making sure, policing that the rules are being complied with, protecting the turf of the game. You don't want other, you don't want outsiders coming in and disrupting the game or or giving your your participants other options, right? So there's this there's this energy expenditure necessary to preserve the integrity of the game because it's imposed and it's not consensually adopted. Now in an equilibriated game, which would be which would map onto a dramatic game in the finite and infinite game terms, um, these are rules that are consensually adopted, right? All the players want to be there. They're willing, they've, they've consensually adopted the boundaries. Uh, so therefore, there is no need to enforce the rules, right? There's no, there's no policing necessary, no turf protection, no expenditure on enforcement necessary because everyone wants to be there, right? They, they chose the rules themselves and they're playing by them accordingly. So the argument here is that the equilibriated dramatic game always outcompetes the disequilibriated or theatrical game. Another way to think about this is the open network, right? The open source network that it's free to opt into or opt out of or fork and create a new one 
do whatever you want, will always outcompete the network that is closed source, right? That has to protect its boundaries and its turf and enforce its rules on players that don't want to be there. And what do we have when we're looking at Bitcoin versus fiat currency? Well, we have an equilibriated versus a disequilibriated game, right? Bitcoin is open. All its rules are consensually adopted. Uh, individual nodes actually choose the rules they want to run. And the net consensus of all of them is Bitcoin. Whereas in fiat currency, you have legal coercion used to trap people into a fiat currency um, system and impose and police rules on them. So there's a strong argument here to be made that this less energy efficient system, the disequilibriated theatrical fiat system, is will inevitably be outcompeted by the open, dramatic, equilibrated Bitcoin system. And so, and to use, and this is also like when you talk about capitalism versus socialism, right? You look at U.S. capitalism, although it's not true capitalism, it has heavy state interference. It's still economically outcompeted Soviet Russia in the 20th century. That is a big example of this equally equilibriated versus disequilibriated game uh, comp competitive dynamic. And so these are, again, the, the language of that book talks about the difference between finite, finite and infinite games. And the finite game is one that players play toward a certain end, right? They just want to win the game and end the game. Whereas the infinite game is one in which players play for the sake of play itself. They just want to keep playing the game because it's enjoyable, right? It's, it's intrinsically fulfilling. And so that's true in the game of money, right? If you have a, if you have a money isn't naturally an infinite game, because if you have an infinite or a finite game of money, and one person wins all the money, well, the game's over. It doesn't. That's like the game of Monopoly, right? If you ever played the board game Monopoly, what happens when one guy gets all the money? Well, the game's over. But it, the actual game of money, which is very wrapped up and inexorably bound to the game of civilization, is that we want to keep playing, right? The game of life is what we want to keep ongoing and keep improving over time. So... And to tie this into game theory, now we're kind of like leaving the realm of the book a little bit. Um, there's a concept in game theory called the shelling point, which is basically a game theoretical focal point that people will choose independently um, in any adversarial game. So I often like to cite military examples in this case. If your enemy is carpet bombing you, you better get some bombers in the sky pretty quick, otherwise you're going to lose that that war, that battle, because the shelling point in that case would be the bomber, right? That would be the most powerful weapon that's being used against you. If you can't wield that same weapon back against your adversary, then you're not likely to stay in the battle for long. And with money, you know, as we described with the ascent of gold as money, that it was the most relatively scarce asset available. Um, the most relatively scarce asset that fulfilled these other useful properties of money, um, it was basically, it was a reflection of the shelling point of money itself, which is this, this game theoretic optimal strategy, which is hold the most scarce asset, 
as the best means of conserving purchasing power over time. Well, that's what gold was, but if we look at Bitcoin, um, you know, economic actors are basically, they're incentivized, you're naturally incentivized to choose the savings technology that's going to do the best job over time. And so the savings technology that will do the best job over time is necessarily that which is most scarce or that which has the least flexible supply as proven with the emergence of gold. Um, now this is, you're basically saying another way to say the shelling point is like, what's the most energy efficient strategy? And in the sphere of money, it's like, just hold the money that's hardest to counterfeit because that protects you from having your purchasing power stolen by anyone else. So gold, you know, the, the relative scarcity of gold has been the shelling point of money for many thousands of years, but Bitcoin is absolute scarcity, right? It's the only asset in human history that no one can counterfeit or increase the supply of in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So what we have is this irrefutable shelling point in Bitcoin, right? It's a brand new focal point in the game of money that's a singular, unshakable strategy, right? And, it, and it's, again, like zero, it's, it's tapped into something that's absolute. There's no there's not even a conceivable strategy that can outcompete that. It's, you know, 0% money supply growth is like zero in, in the framework of mathematics. So uh, I have a, a little quote here that I'll read that hopefully captures it well. I wrote that a distant digital descendant of zero, the invention of Bitcoin represents the discovery of absolute scarcity for money, an idea as equally unstoppable. So, yeah, there are these, through the lens of game theory, right, it was much more energy efficient and therefore uh, competitively advantageous for merchants to use the zero-based Hindu Arabic numeral system, which led to its proliferation, in the same way that is much more advantageous for savers to use absolutely scarce money, which is Bitcoin, which is leading to its proliferation especially as other currencies are being debased more and more rapidly, right? That actually increases the pain on savers, which motivates them to move their purchasing power into alternatives. So to try and bring like all of this back together, um, the, this, this symbol for absolute nothingness that was, that was discovered in zero um, I think the absolute scarcity that Bitcoin symbolizes is also special and similarly impactful. Um, as we said, it was gold that had the most inelastic money supply. That's what made it become money. Bitcoin is now the perfection, perfectly inelastic money supply, right? 0% monetary growth. Uh, it's a perfect reflection of time, which is what money is intended to implementize in the first place. It, it perfects price discovery and that changes in price denominated in Bitcoin are everywhere and always only a factor of supply and demand changes. There's no, there's no policy, there's no monetary policy like, oh, we printed this much new Bitcoin today or yesterday. Like everyone just knows with perfect certainty that there's a fixed quantity of Bitcoin so that any changes in asset prices denominated in Bitcoin 
have to be all related to supply and demand for the asset, not to changes in the policy of the money itself. Um, and all of this, you know, that combined with its perfection as a store of value, uh, this leads to people consensually adopting it over time. And as Bitcoin proponents believe will lead to it becoming the dominant asset in the world. And, you know, it's a, it's a new shelling point, right? We had gold as a shelling point for a long time. Bitcoin has basically replaced that. It makes trade easier because it allows us to engage one another commercially in a way that we don't need to trust each other so much, right? We can just trust the integrity of the money rather than needing to engage in a lot of counterparty uh, based activity as we do on the gold standard. So that's another advantage of Bitcoin. And it's, you know, kind of like zero that improved our communications and informational transmissions in terms of giving us like a really pure uh, mathematical language and also giving us better communication technologies. Bitcoin purifies price signals, right? That, again, we just get pure information. You get all signal and, and no, no, low to no noise. And so the game of money changes as a result, right? The old, the old game of money, it, it was always hold. It's still the same thing, actually. It's hold the most scarce asset, hold the most scarce monetary technology. And that's always been gold. But since Satoshi delivered us this gift in 2009, it's now Bitcoin. So uh, all of this said point out that it is hard to understand, right? You have to cover a lot of history. Again, it's very interdisciplinary. Um, but hopefully uh, this little this little journey can help you see that the goal of money now is to occupy the most territory on the only absolutely scarce monetary network in existence, which is Bitcoin itself. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> 
So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Okay, so the next section I'm going to go into is titled A New Epoch for Money. And as I've covered a lot, you know, historically, in terms of monetary technologies, the precious metals were the best things we had in terms of satisfying money's five critical properties, which are divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, scarcity. Of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce. So that's why it outcompeted everything else. Um, and it's in that ascension of gold that we're being told something. We're being told that this distributed computing system that we call the free market, it was trying to zero in on um, the most scarce thing that was also divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, right? It's looking for the best store of value that also satisfies the other properties of money. And it's, you know, that's what free markets do, actually. They're zeroing in on, always zeroing in on, um, what I like to call pragmatic truths, which are prices, right? There's that saying on Wall Street that price is truth, contains all the information relative to the asset at any one time, and also innovations and technologies, right? That um, the most, you know, the, the pragmatic truth of digging holes, for instance, is a shovel, right? It's the best tool for the job at any given price point. It's the best way humans know how to satisfy a particular want or solve a particular problem. And so markets are always compressing all of mankind's intersubjective wants and perspectives um, within the boundaries of objective reality and the supplies of capital and time and all that to produce these approximations of, of pragmatic truth. And so for money, it's, it's telling us that verifiable scarcity is like the best proxy for the truthfulness of money, right? Like whatever has the most verifiable scarcity it, that's also sufficiently indivisible, durable, recognizable, portable will be promoted as money, will become we will ascribe uh, the role of money to that particular asset um, because that's what we're looking for, right? We're looking for this risk-minimized way of conserving purchasing power over time and verifiable scarcity is equivalent to saying, you know, this particular money has the least probability of being debased over time. That's what gold was and that's what Bitcoin is today. 
So if we do like a pre-Bitcoin thought experiment to expand upon this a little bit, if we discovered, again, before Bitcoin, a quote-unquote new gold that was somewhat evenly distributed in the Earth's surface um, and had all the comparable qualities of gold, except that it was more scarce, uh, meaning that it was harder to produce over time, that it's likely the market would have began, over a long enough period of time, would have began to favor that uh, particular asset as the best store of value. Um, so again, it's it's because obviously it's better holding purchasing power over time and it's better at conveying accurate prices. And this is what market actors are seeking in good money. And again, that's like, that's an example of the free market trying to zero in on the best tool for the job. But we could never, no matter what, how scarce of a physical asset um, or new new gold that we discovered, we would never discover absolute scarcity in physical form because physical absolute scarcity is impossible, right? It's always possible to create more of a, any physical asset, right? Someone somewhere can discover it or make more of it somehow. The only known um, composition of absolute scarcity is digital, right? It's the only form that we know of, um, you know, even with gold, right? If we could flip a switch today and make everyone's occupation change from whatever it is to gold mining, we could increase the supply of gold very rapidly. Yet with Bitcoin, if we do the same thing, we switch everyone's occupation in the world to Bitcoin mining, or they, you know, sell all of their goods and they buy a bunch of Bitcoin miners, it wouldn't change the supply or issuance schedule of Bitcoin at all. It wouldn't change at all because Bitcoin adapts to how hard we mine it. So, so punchline is the only way we can guarantee a permanently fixed supply is with a digital money, and that's what Bitcoin is. Now, further, digitization is advantageous across all those properties of money. Um, since Bitcoin is just pure information, relative to every other monetary technology in the world, we can say that its divisibility is supreme, right? It's infinitely divisible. It can be broken down and recombined at near zero cost. It's like just pure information. Um, its durability is perfected because as distributed information, it does not decompose. Uh, the example I always like to cite here is the Bible. You can burn as many Bibles as you want, but you'll never destroy the Bible, which is just this set of distributed information permeating the entire world. Obviously, as pure information, Bitcoin can be moved at the speed of light. That means it's perfected the monetary property of portability. Um, recognizability has also been perfected by Bitcoin in that the entire supply can be audited and you run a full node. So you can always verify that the Bitcoin is Bitcoin, right? That it's not counterfeit. Um, it's, it's basically immune to counterfeiting, which, which perfects the monetary property of recognizability. And finally, uh, because it has a perfectly fixed supply, it's perfected scarcity. It's absolutely scarce. So, you know, again, this is another angle. Like we looked at Bitcoin, its emergence with path dependence and four-sided network effects, uh, and a first mover advantage that all seemingly make it insurmountable or undisruptable, here's another perspective on it. Looking at it through monetary property lens, it's 
maximized or optimize all the properties of good money. So that makes it, you know, absolutely scarce digital money like Bitcoin seems to be indomitable in the marketplace. There's not really a conceivable way that a new technology could disrupt it or supplant it. Um, another way to think about it is like Satoshi left no design space for anyone to introduce a superior feature. And even if they did, Bitcoin does retain this ability as open source software to adapt, right? If there were some new monetary property that were discovered and it was determined to be important, Bitcoin still retains the capacity to adopt such a feature. So, you know, scarcity, it's essential to the utility of money and therefore a zero growth terminal money supply represents perfect scarcity, right? It's perfect, which makes Bitcoin, you know, for the other uh, reasons we just mentioned as well, it's as near a perfect monetary technology mankind has ever had. And so this is like a, it's a major breakthrough. And um, we see this in the meteoric rise of Bitcoin's price. And um, no one knows how to stop this, right? There's, there's, a, there's a reflexivity occurring here, which means that the longer Bitcoin continues to do exactly what it says it will do, the more humans will anticipate it to continue doing exactly what it says it will do against a backdrop of all these other currencies being debased and failing and, you know, being used to steal purchasing power from savers, uh, the, it just gradually shifts over time, right? People start to see the writing on the wall, whether it's through, you know, the pain of hyperinflation or other forms of government intervention or oppression, uh, people learn, right? They learn through the pain or through, through education and they start to move their wealth into the risk minimized asset. So to try and summarize a lot of this that we've just talked about with Bitcoin, the invention of Bitcoin represents a discovery, what I like to call absolute scarcity. You could also call this absolute irreproducibility and that you cannot produce Bitcoin. It's a fixed supply. It occurred due to a very specific sequence of events. Um, any attempt to try and disrupt that just doesn't, you know, again, theoretically it won't work. And then we also have uh, the proof point of Bitcoin Cash. Uh, due to path dependence, absolute scarcity, as I argue in necessity, is a one-time discovery, just like heliocentrism or any other major scientific paradigm shift. Um, we're not going to undiscover that the sun is the center of the solar system, right? Just like we're not going to undiscover zero, just like we're not going to undiscover Bitcoin. So it's an idea that's not really going anywhere. Um, and in a, a world where that idea already exists, the idea of launching a competitive proof of work chain due to path dependence and all the things we mentioned earlier, just is not possible. So Bitcoin really can't be replicated or disrupted by any other proof of work consensus mechanism. And so at this point, it seems Bitcoin is as resistant to disruption as the number zero itself. And if we wanted to speculate on like the nature of a true Bitcoin killer, we would need something, we would need an unprecedentedly organized group of human beings to force a change. Um, you know, like we, the U.S. government couldn't even f force people to switch from the standard 
uh, measurement system to the metric system, right? You would need some unprecedentedly organized group of humans to like physically force everyone to switch away from Bitcoin. And it's, it's just something that's not even historically, there's no historical example of that, nor is it conceivable to organize humans um, to such a degree. And so it looks like for the same reasons, same economic reasons, we had one gold, right? One analog gold became the dominant money in the world. We're very likely to only have one digital gold. And that appears to be a race that Bitcoin has already run and won. And so, you know, this is kind of same, we're back to this like energy efficiency aspect and, and competition among competing ideas and technologies. It's like the same reason that zero-based numeral system outcompetes inferior numeral systems or that capitalism outcompetes socialism. Absolute scarcity outcompetes all forms of relative scarcity when it comes to money. And, you know, tie, looking kind of back to zero a little bit, in the same way numbers are the fundamental abstractions that rule our world, money is the dominant abstraction that governs our actions, right? Um, it arises naturally as the most tradable thing in society. It's scarcity that enables money to hold value across time. Um, scarce money accrues value as our productivity expands, so there's always a huge incentive to save in the scarcest money you can get your hands on. And so therefore, the most scarce money that's otherwise divisible, durable, recognizable, and portable wins, right? It wins in free market competition. So if it's the most relatively scarce money that wins over time, then what is Bitcoin as absolutely scarce money? Well, you know, it's like what zero is to math, absolute scarcity is to money. It's, it's this astonishing one-time discovery Um the implementation and and it's emblematic of the void itself, right? We've touched, we've discovered or invented, whatever you want to say, another absolute in the same way that we we found zero. And it is it's a window or a symbol of the void itself, much like its predecessor zero. And um you know, I, there's a quote here that I used to sum it up. I say, Bitcoin is the global economic singularity, the ultimate monetary center of gravity, an exponential devourer of liquid value in the world economy, the epitome of time, and the zero point of money. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach, uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. 
Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Okay, so the next section is titled Fiat Currency Always Falls to Zero. And, you know, so zero obviously proven itself as the capstone of our numeral system or mathematics itself. Um, I assert that Bitcoin in time will prove itself as the most, as the capstone to economics, really the capstone innovation of capitalism itself. And um, it really does that by realigning us with natural law, which the very, the central premise of natural laws do not steal, right? If you just stop, I, I think, and think about this, you'll quickly intuitively grasp that every hour or every moment that human beings spend stealing from other human beings is an hour or moment that they're not engaging in production. So therefore, every hour spent stealing is a net decrement to productivity, right? We're decreasing human potential and productivity with every act of theft. Further, every act of theft is a disincentive for producers to produce and to be productive. Because if I can't keep the fruits of my labor, then why would I be incentivized to be productive, right? So the extent to which I can keep all the fruits of my labor is the, the same extent to which I am incentivized to be productive. This is what natural law says. It just says, do not steal. Yet, you know, to the extent stealing is profitable, humans have engaged in it historically. And Bitcoin, quite simply, just makes theft much less profitable and therefore tilts the incentive landscape uh, much closer to that ideal state of natural law where human beings engage exclusively in production to acquire wealth and as little as possible, ideally zero in theft or extraction to acquire wealth. And so Bitcoin is just one of the greatest innovations to that end humans have ever had. And I cite a tweet here that I mentioned a long time ago, or that I put, posted a long time ago back in March 2020. I said zero is special. Back when we had 0% interest rates, 0% reserve requirements, and 0% central bank accountability, the only answer is the only money with a 0% terminal inflation rate, Bitcoin. So, again, this is another way to think about the, the connection between Bitcoin and zero and, um, you know, how prevalent this number is in the world today. So, central planning, we already know that, like, it's common sense in the West, the central planning doesn't work. Uh, we've got a lot of theory as do we have empirical evidence that it fails in every market space, yet we still have it in the market for money. Um, it's a tyranny, right? It's a tyrannical hierarchy. Central banking has increased wealth disparities worldwide. It's funded catastrophic warfares like World War One and World War II. 
It's plundered entire commonwealths to bail out failing institutions. It props up zombie companies. Uh, it, it funds, it turns mainstream media into a psychological operation. Like it's just a lie that, that, that propagates through all of the strata of human interaction that we have and corrupts them. Right. So this is why Bitcoiners often say it's, you know, fix the money, fix the world. Uh, and the flip side of that would be like corrupt money corrupts the world, something like that. And so the only way to heal all this devastation is to get back to a free market money, right? That's what gold was. Uh, although gold had certain drawbacks that we mentioned, uh, Bitcoin takes us back there in a much better way. And so although, you know, unlike central bankers, which are just fallible human beings, and despite their claim to be an apolitical institution, obviously it's run by human beings. Human beings are political animals. They give in to political pressure. Um, and they often respond to that pressure by printing money, by stealing from people through inflation. Bitcoin is different, though. The Bitcoin issuance schedule, I don't like to call it a monetary policy because it's not imposed, it's not policed, it's consensually adopted. The issuance schedule of Bitcoin does not respond to political pressure in any way. It cannot change. It doesn't care about the, the ebbs and flows of human affairs. It just does exactly what it says it will do. In other words, Bitcoin's quote-unquote monetary policy gives zero fucks. And this is so important in a world where Bitcoin, or I'm sorry, where central banks are just adding zeros to a database to steal wealth systemically, right? You you have to have a zero fucks money to prevent central bankers from just adding zeros to a database to steal your wealth. There is no other answer. And what, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by zero fucks money? It's a money that cannot be confiscated, it cannot be inflated, and it cannot be stopped. Like this, this is what we need to throw off the yoke of central bank tyranny once and for all. And Bitcoin was specifically designed as a countermeasure to expansionary monetary policies, which is code word for wealth confiscation via inflation. And it's a true zero to one invention. It's an innovation that profoundly changes society rather than just incrementally advancing it. Um, it promises to break these cycles of criminality that governments and central banks have used to privatize gains via seniorage and inflation, or via seniorage and socialize losses via inflation. It breaks that whole cycle of institutionalized criminality. And, you know, it, we've seen this so many times. Like when you debase the monetary protocol, it, it unglues society. Social cohesion falls apart and uh, things get really bad. So, um, you know, hopefully with, with uncompromisable, uncounterfeitable money, we can break that cycle. Okay. The last section of the essay entitled the zero hour. I talk about initially here, the inflation rate, the relationship between the inflation rate and societal well-being. they are inversely related. So Another way to say this is the integrity of the money supply is inexorably bound to the integrity of the civilization using the money, right? That the tighter and more integral the money is, the less corruptible it is, 
the tighter and less corruptible the civilization running on that monetary standard is as a result. Um, so, you know, quite simply, the more easily you can conserve purchasing power across time, the more trust can be cultivated among market participants. Because, it, you know, what are we saying here? It's difficult and expensive to steal, so therefore it's much easier to trust individual self-interest that they'll engage with you productively and cooperatively rather than uh, expropriate you, let's say. Now, when money's roots to economic reality are severed, as happened when fiat currency was depegged from gold, the supply inevitably tends towards infinity, right? So the inflation rate over time goes way up, the currency eventually hyperinflates. When it hyperinflates, again, societal cohesion and well-being is inversely related so when money supply growth goes to infinity and hyperinflation, societal well-being goes to zero and societal collapse. So we know that. That's an established relationship. Again, theoretically and empirically, it makes sense. Uh, and we've seen it happen time and time again. Now, as an alternative, this unstoppable free market alternative, Bitcoin is permanently anchored to economic reality in a way that it cannot be separated, right? It has proof-of-work energy expenditure built into its consensus mechanism. It cannot be depegged from energy expenditure. And it has an inflation rate that's predestined for zero, right? The last Bitcoin will be minted in the mid-22nd century, at which point the inflation of Bitcoin goes to zero percent. Um, so now, if our theory is correct that inflation and societal well-being are inversely related, well, if inflation goes to 0%, doesn't that mean that societal well-being can theoretically go to infinity? Like, how high can it go? We know that the opposite is true. So why not um, taking inflation to zero? What does that mean for social cohesion, for civilizational advancement, for human flourishing? And so... The people that realize this first and adopt it earliest, they're just going to benefit disproportionately from the resulting mass wealth transfer. And the, and the other thing about Bitcoin is, again, that it's a perfected monetary technology. So in theory, you're going to hold a stake in all the purchasing power that mankind will create for the rest of time, right? And until Bitcoin is disrupted, which at least at this point in human history is, is inconceivable. Like maybe we get something different in 500 years, who knows? Um, but you'll at least have uh, a tremendous amount of wealth for the next few generations, let's put it that way. Now, we touched on this in the essay, but zero and infinity are reciprocals of one another, right? One divided by infinity equals zero, one divided by zero equals infinity. And so I think we, you know, what, when the Fed is saying, and there's a, there's a guy, I posted the link to it here, uh, one of the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve members, saying that the Fed has infinite cash. It's his actual quote. The Fed has infinite cash. Like, just do the math. Just stop and do the math. If they have infinite cash, what does that mean for the purchasing power per unit of dollar? It means that it's going to zero, right? That this is mathematical. You can't, there's no way out of it, right? And this is their own confession, their own profession on national television that the Fed has infinite cash. So there's no better place 
There's no worse place, <clears throat> excuse me, to put your purchasing power other than the U.S. dollar in the long run. So to sum this up, right, zero arose in the world because it was an unstoppable idea and it's it was an idea whose time had come. It broke the dominion of the church and put an end to its monopolization over uh, knowledge and access to the gates of heaven, right? It de disintermediated uh, people's relationship with God. And it, it motivated this movement, the separation of church and state. And this led to uh, really the individual becoming the cornerstone of the state as we have in, in Western civilization today. And behind this came an unprecedented boom in scientific advancement, wealth creation, worldwide well-being. Um, and, you know, as I've tried to argue in this essay, I think Bitcoin is a similar idea whose time has come. The idea of absolute scarcity comes at a time when the scarcity of all monies worldwide are being rapidly compromised to steal from people and um, impose certain political agendas. And it's it's breaking the siege of central banks on individual financial sovereignty and invoking a movement of its own, right? The separation of money and state as its revolutionary banner and uh, hopefully reinvigorating or energizing uh, the, the rise of natural law and adherence to that, to its core principle of do not steal by virtue of it being very hard to steal, right? It's just an incentive schema that tilts people towards natural law and away from statism and central banking. And there's a quote here that I, that I wrote to try and capture all this. I wrote that only unstoppable ideas can break otherwise immovable institutions. Zero brought the church to its knees, and Bitcoin is bringing the false church of the Fed into the sunlight of its long-awaited judgment day. So, Bitcoin, zero, these are both emblematic of the void, the realm of pure potentiality from which everything springs, this nothingness from which everything effervesces and to which all possibility finally collapses. They're unstoppable ideas that were gifted to mankind, right? True, a true something for nothing, right? We got zero for basically for nothing, right? Brahmagupta just gifted it to us as Satoshi gifted us Bitcoin. And in a world where central banks are running with zero accountability, uh, they have the specter of infinite cash that they're flagrantly, uh, flagrantly broadcasting. Um, and, you know, thereby raising the specter of hyperinflation. I mean, not, it's not even a specter at that point. It's, it's a guarantee. If you're saying you have infinite cash, you're going to hyperinflate the currency. It's the same thing. In that world, right? And nothingness, right? The nothingness that Bitcoin represents may prove to be the greatest gift we could ever receive at this time in history. So I would like to thank you, Brahmagupta, you ancient mathematician, you for giving a zero and creating this wonderful age of modernity. And I would like to thank you, Satoshi Nakamoto, wherever you are, for giving us the wonderful invention of Bitcoin and the discovery of absolute scarcity for money. And that is it. Um, I hope you enjoyed this commentary on the number zero in Bitcoin. Um, I, you know, really enjoyed writing this piece. Uh, 
I'm not sure where the idea came to me from. Actually, it's one of those strange things where I thought about it for a long time and it just hit me like a flash of insight that there was a deep connection between these two phenomena. And um, like I said, this is my most pe most popular written work. Uh, I look forward to doing more of these. I'll do more of these essays where I read the entire thing and then provide some commentary. So let me know what you think about this in the comments. Um, thank you all so much for supporting my work and following my work. I really appreciate it. And I will see you back here again soon.